It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for everybody who wants to vaccinate and wants to know more about vaccinating. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah. Sort of a, a simple intro there. My yeah. name my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, a pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we have an exciting episode today because we decided to invite on our friend, Dr. Paul Offit, to talk a little bit about this trend of delaying or spacing out vaccines, um, sometimes referred to as the alternative vaccine schedule, and sort of go through the history and the science of it. Super fascinating stuff. And he is certainly one of the people who knows the most about uh, the CDC vaccine schedule and um parents who have decided to diverge from it of course you know a lot about that too nathan yeah i do get the opportunity to talk with parents in my clinic about when they bring up alternative vaccination schedules why i recommend the vaccine schedule that's actually been tested and shown to be safe and effective instead of one that um some guy wrote in his book but uh i i think it's going to be a great conversation i i do too but before that, we have to do our Around the Web. I need, mm-hmm. I, you know what, one of these days I'm going to get Around the Web music, but I don't have it today. So, oh, we should. Mr. Dr. Nathan Boonstra, yes. uh, why don't you go first? Sure. I, I honestly didn't want to talk about this, and I hope it's not what you had chosen. But since we are talking about alternative vaccination schedules, I guess we better talk about the shenanigans that uh, Dr. Bob Sears the, has been mm-hmm. up to um, since he's kind of the father of alternative vaccination schedules well um let's go back to spring of 2019 when uh dr sears posted and 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 mind you and you know he he is kind of the father of alternative vaccination schedules but since then he's been just straight up now an anti-vaccine player um he in March, posted and promoted a book from an author named John Philip Ryan, and it was a book called A Tale of Two Sides, and it was supposed to be this, it's a fictional book about these various stories uh, put together that I don't think has an ongoing narrative through it, just various like episodes of different sides of the vaccine story and so he puts a little snippet on his facebook page and says you should read this you should buy this book from this author i love it i think it's going to be a big deal um and there was a facebook page for this author and there's a website for this author and all that and i don't think it made a whole big blip on anybody's radar it didn't look all that exciting Fast forward to just a few weeks ago, during this time, Sears has been under a large amount of scrutiny thanks to the bill that was passed in um, uh, California to crack down on fake uh, vaccine medical exemptions, of which he is one of the largest purveyors of. Um, And he basically, I don't know what he just, he just decided to to throw <laughs> throw a caution to the wind, I guess. And he said, oh, actually, I wrote this book under a pen name. John Philip Ryan is me. This is my book. I'm really proud of it. Here's some more excerpts of it. Um, go, I, I was nervous about 
putting my name on it before, but now I'm not. I'm very proud of this book. The book is really bad. So I have not read the entirety of the book, but between the amount, there's about a quarter of it is on Google Books. About another, like entire chapters, uh, as far as I can tell, were put onto the Facebook page and on his page. Like if you piece together all the excerpts, we could probably get most of this book that he's already put out on the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's even looking at it from a not the, you know, looking at how it's called a tale of two sides. It is almost entirely anti-vaccine stuff. Uh, And I, I would characterize it as if you took his vaccine book and you took all of his Facebook posts and you chopped them up and you put quotation marks around them. And then you gave those quotes to people otherwise doing totally uninteresting things that would be his book like it's just exposition in boring situations except for the parts where it gets really dicey and by that i mean he has a chapter in which he writes uh, the character of a black woman standing up at a school board meeting and telling the school board com- telling school board how vaccine requirements were ge- were were similar to racial segregation in the civil rights movement he has a part of that chapter where he has a character um basically take shots at uh real life dr pan because the person is saying certainly with the history that um uh you know minorities have had uh, in this country it must be a white person who made this law not a minority person who made this law i'm paraphrasing there and trying to like ac- accuse dr pan of of doing that so it's really bad on so many levels um and I, I i could see why he was initially hesitant to maybe put his name on it but he did and it's his yeah. now he owns it oh that's so painful to me I mean, I knew about this and then I wiped it from my memory and hearing you go through it all again afresh for me, like mm-hmm. it, 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 it pains me. It, it pains me because I, I really feel like he hasn't always been this far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's it's been a spiral that you can watch. It's hard to watch. But also, just like good fiction... It shouldn't be a lesson or, uh, you know, uh, it, sh- it shouldn't feel like someone lecturing you the whole time. Mm-hmm. I-, I once had, um, you know, I've taken a lot of fiction writing classes in my time and then uh, decided that I wanted to do vaccine stuff instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> uh, I had one, <laughs> I had one fiction teacher tell me that all good fiction is about a subculture. So you could really argue that being anti-vaccine is a subculture. But in order to write about that, you'd have to invite people into that, into what it feels like. And in order to know what it feels like, you also have to know what it doesn't feel like, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. And I, I think that instead, what he wanted to do with the book is he wanted to lecture everyone else about how unfair they are to this subculture. Mm -hmm. 
So it's just, it's it's a painful way to approach the topic. I don't know that you could ever make an interesting fictional book about vaccines. I mean, there's some, like Balto, like that was, you know. Right. Um, I that think was you could absolutely have a, like, Dan Brown style, you know, if somebody really was anti-vaccine and wanted to make a gripping, like, try to expose this conspiracy kind of novel, I think you could. It would have to be like Crichton-esque or Dan kind of, you know, Crichton slash Dan Brown kind of unraveling the thing that's going on in the pharmaceutical company and the worker who figures it all out and all that. But it would obviously be far abstracted from reality, but readable and maybe compelling. (laughs) The mind you, the plot of mission impossible two is about a pharmaceutical company that makes a virus and then makes the vaccine or injection or whatever. Cause in movies, anything injected is always vaccine, but you know, and basically has that plot. So you can watch mission impossible two, but somebody could write a book (laughs) that's similar to that. Okay. I can see that. That, that makes sense. I mean, I don't think you can write a book where it's just talking about, um, you know, families and not not liking California's vaccine laws. I don't think yeah, that's not, but yeah, not a fictional. If it were something like a little more fictionalized, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I hope I that's hope nobody I listens to our uh, podcast who wants to make that because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually want that book written. Actually, I want in on it. If somebody's going to make this, I want to be consulted. <laughs> Why don't you write it? <laughs> that's a great idea. Because unlike you, I have not taken any courses in how to write fiction, and it would turn out poorly. I mean... Not as poorly as one John Philip Ryan, though, I would add. (laughs) Kind of adjacent to that, believe it or not. You're going to think I'm lying, but it is adjacent to that. And that's that uh, last week, there was an event in Washington, D.C. called the Vaccine Injury Epidemic Event, Mm -hmm. or the VI event. Yes. and uh, it's unclear how many people were there. And that doesn't matter. There were, you know, at least a few hundred people there who were very committed to showing how bad vaccines are to whoever was around. Mm-hmm. And I did not watch this thing being live streamed by Bill- Del Bigtree. I didn't. Like, go back and watch the videos of it. I didn't read anything on it. But I did watch, like, a two-minute video made by The Real Truther on Facebook. The Real Truther is, yeah, he's the opposite of what we think of as a truther. He exposes truthers for not being truthers. And he kind of chopped it up and made it into this two-minute highlight video. And it's all the all the things you expect to be said. It's Del Bigtree. It's that Hillary Simpson. It's Dr. T- Sherry Tenpenny. It's Bob Sears. It's um, RFK Jr. All you know, saying things like vax. Oh, and Dr. Meehan from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. all saying things about how vaccines are satan satanic and part of the cabal, and really down, down, down that rabbit hole. Yeah, it was hardcore. And I watched I was, that clip video too. Oh. It's 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 hard to take. And as I'm watching this, I'm really thinking about that in combination with, you know, this book that you're talking about in combination with the Vax 2 movie and how I really feel like 
the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, these hardcore anti-vaccine people who are making money off the movement, who are having these big events, that they really have stepped aside from reality far enough that it's hard for an unsuspecting parent anymore to be brought in. That's my feeling that I don't think a lot of people are going to be swayed by these big events or by these big movies. Now, I'm not saying that what anti-vaccine people are saying in the general public isn't going to be filtered into the general population where parents will see a video about a supposed vaccine injury and then be scared to give that vaccine. But I really feel as though the anti-vaccine movement has evolved to such a place that there is no on-ramp for your average parent anymore. So I wanted to mention that. I mean, I, do you agree with me, Nathan? I 100% do. And this is one of the things that has always been interesting to me about the anti-vaccine movement is that, as we've said on this program many times, you know, you have your uh, vaccine-hesitant families who are coming from a decent place of being concerned about their child and maybe believing something because something has an emotional attachment um, or, you know, having an experience that makes them believe what they believe and from a human psychology standpoint that is actually understandable they are still mm -hmm. wrong and not immunizing your child is still something that can put them in danger and can put other people in danger but that psychology is real um but then you have the larger movement that is descending further and further into abhorrent areas so the core group that you see um, like the leadership of the leadership when you see Andrew Wakefield RFK Jr. and Del Bigtree kind of the three prongs like the science the legality and the PR they are all making extremely offensive statements all the time they're you know this Vive event they were saying things like that um, and being a part of that event where you know, vaccines are called satanic, etc. Um, they've uh, they've been making anti-Semitic statements, um, violent statements about you know. Uh, uh, Big Tree has a thing in a video where he says, "All you people with your guns, now is the time." What you know, kind of what are you waiting for when it comes to you know these vaccine requirements, that kind of thing. Um, all kinds of these things, and you don't hear anybody condemning them at all we would not tolerate such talk from our leadership we would not tolerate such talk from our political leaders like we no, it's not okay you call that out you never see that in the anti-vaccine movement and so it always bothers me it's always difficult for me to understand how well-meaning parents are willing to be associated with a group like this that does the kinds of things mm -hmm. that you're describing you know, I do wonder how many parents who delay and refuse vaccines even know about that side of the anti-vaccine movement. I, I wonder how many of them just feel like this is scary. I don't know what yeah. to do, so I'm going to do nothing. And, yeah. they, and they don't delve deeper into w where is this, I, where are my ideas coming from? Mm-hmm. I really think that's something that needs to have sunlight shined on it more because I think we give the movement as a whole because we 
are trying to be understanding of parents that um, have bad information and where that comes from. I think sometimes that we um, ignore the bad actors that are truly behind it and how bad these actors are. And I think if that comes to light mm -hmm. more, that might influence at least the level of involvement with this movement that a parent who may be vaccine hesitant would have. Yeah, I, I agree. And I really feel like I've got to figure out a good way to do this. I know I want to write a little piece about how, you know, anti-vaccine leaders are trying to profit from you and just list out all of the various articles that have been written over the years about how much money they're making and you know, how big their houses are, how, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money out of this. They're getting huge unrestricted grants from individuals and, it's it's a it's a huge money maker. I mean, to fly all over the country the way that that some of these folks do, they're they're bringing in a lot of money, and I really want parents to understand that if you're going to these like events, if you're going to see Vax too, if you're buying the books, I mean, I, I heard that Vera, how do you say her name, Vera Schreibner, I think remember so. her? Yep. Uh, her book costs seventy five dollars on Amazon. <laughs> Um, what? I know. And, you know, and that's just to say, you can get all the information you want about vaccines for free. Mm -hmm. From reliable people. I really want parents to know that. Like, don't spend another penny. Spend no money. Like, make what decision you're going to make, but try making it without spending any money and seeing where that gets you because i have a feeling that it we'd all be in a much different place if parents stopped spending money on getting information about vaccines yeah maybe not <laughs> on that note right uh when we return we're going to be back with dr paul offit for free for free Ta-da! <laughs> We are now joined by Dr. Paul Offit, whom you may have heard of. He is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I guess he's had a little bit of experience making vaccines. He's also the father of two fully vaccinated children, and I'm pretty sure he's gotten his flu shot this year. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're always thrilled to have you especially because we wanted to talk a little bit about alternative schedules. Uh, we've done a lot of episodes where we talk about sort of what's in the news and what's topical, but this is really more about that whole alternate schedule, like not following the CDC schedule thing. So it's more of an answering a big question that's out there a lot. And it's sort of a dicey question too. So I guess I wanted to start way back at the beginning, way back in the basics. So when people talk about an alternative vaccine schedule, what is it that they really mean? Yeah, so I, I think this was born of a book that was published by Dr. Robert Sears from California called The Vaccine Book, Making the Right Decision for Your Child, at the back of which he has a few pages titled Dr. Bob's Alternative Vaccine Schedule. Um, first of all, people should know that there, there is no such thing as an alternative vaccine schedule. There's the schedule that is, is well-hewn by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics. That is the vaccine schedule. Um, 
Dr. Sears' schedule is basically a delayed vaccine schedule. That's what it is. It just sort of spaces out um, and delays vaccines that children should be getting earlier than they're getting them according to his schedule. He basically just made up a schedule. So there is no alternative vaccine schedule, although I think people um, are um, often will sort of Xerox those few pages at the back of Dr. Robert Sears's book and say, here, I want this schedule, this arguably, as far as Dr. Sears is trying to promote, safer, better schedule, whereas neither of those things are true. It's not a safer schedule, and it's certainly a less effective schedule because all it does is increase the period of time during your, which you're susceptible to vaccine-preventable diseases with no benefit. You wrote an article in 2009 uh, in Pediatrics, a journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, called uh, "The Problem with Dr. Bob's Alternative Vaccination or Alternative Vaccine Schedule," and you kind of mentioned some of that. Uh, what you were just talking about. You also talk about um, the claim, and I've been running into this a lot lately. Just when I look at various groups uh, that are anti-vaccine, this idea that doctors don't understand vaccines or that we're not educated about vaccines, um, and I certainly don't find that to be the case. Can you tell us a little bit about? what doctors know about vaccines from medical school and residency, et cetera? Generally, I mean, certainly at the University of Pennsylvania, um, we give vaccine lectures th that are just just devoted to vaccines. They get two vaccine lectures that are just devoted to vaccines. And then whenever they have a, a section, for example, on a particular bacteria or a particular virus, they also learn about the vaccine for that particular bacteria or virus should one exist. So they're certainly educated as, uh, as medical students. And then when they become pediatricians and have their outpatient clinics, they learn about the schedule and learn about the precautions and contraindications with that schedule. So it, it is a, it is, it is a complicated schedule in the sense that we now give vaccines in the first few years of life to prevent 14 different diseases, which can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that period of time, which can mean as many as five shots at one time. So I certainly understand when parents feel this can just be too much, but it's not. It's a, a well-hewn schedule. It's very well tested for safety, both before a vaccine is, is added to the schedule, uh, where you have to prove basically that your vaccine doesn't interfere with the safety profile or the immunogenicity profile of existing vaccines and vice versa. Otherwise, it could never get on the schedule, which is why when Dr. Bob simply makes up a schedule, it just shows um, how little he understands about what goes into making these schedules. So what, in your opinion, is the impetus for Dr. Bob writing this book? Did it, you kind of implied that most alternative vaccination schedules can be traced back to that book, but what was it that, um, made parents what 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 was it that made dr bob write this book was this in response to parents in general thinking that uh, such a alternative schedule is needed or what i think it, what's happened is we give more and more vaccines, which means more and more shots. I mean, you know, 100 years ago, we gave one vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, which meant one shot by the time you were two. I mean, I was a little boy in the 1950s, so I had the diphtheria, tetanus, whole cell pertussis vaccine. I had the polio vaccine by the late 50s, um, and I had the smallpox vaccine, and that was it. I didn't have, the, I, I, I got measles, I got mumps, I got uh, German measles. I actually had those infections. I had chicken box. I had all those infections. So I was, was a child before those vaccines were available. Now, you know, children get, um, you know, get vaccines in the first few years of life to prevent 14 diseases. And some of those vaccines are given um, with multiple uh, inoculations. So it, it is, I think, a little frightening for parents. I, I think it is. And I think what Dr. Sears did was he, you know, he's a California 
pediatrician. He was trying to find some middle ground, some way where you could sort of eventually get most of the vaccines, but um, realize that, you know, you never got more than two vaccines at one, once, sort of the, the, based on the false notion that if you gave more than two vaccines at once, you would somehow weaken or overwhelm or perturb the immune system, which isn't true. I think he also had the, the false belief that more vaccines um, meant more stress for the child, which also isn't true. I mean, that's been tested where um, doctors looked at cortisol secretion, which is a measure of, um, of stress, and, and found that, um, that if you got one shot as compared to two or more shots, that you had the same level of stress, which is to say you're basically maximally stressed out at one shot. So if you give more shots at once, you're not stressing out the child more. Quite the opposite, actually. According to Dr. Sears' schedule, you know, instead of coming, say, at two, four, six uh, months of age, again, at 12 months of age, um, what he has you do coming back at two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, et cetera, um, it's actually more stressful to do that. Plus, because he delays vaccines, all that does is increase the, the, the likelihood that a child is going to remember getting the, that, that shot. So it doesn't do that either. The third thing he, he argued was that you should never have two uh, or more than two aluminum-containing vaccines, which is to say aluminum salts are used as adjuvants in vaccines, or said another way, aluminum salts are used so that you can give, frankly, give um, lesser amounts of the active ingredient in a vaccine. And again, his notion was that aluminum, you know, that there was just too much aluminum, which also isn't true. And, and there was a, a wonderful study actually done uh, by Karnowski and co-workers um, that was published a few years ago that, that did the perfect study. What they did was they looked at children at their vaccination history. So they knew exactly how much aluminum each of those children had received. Then what they did was they did a developmental assessment on each of those children, blinded, so that the person who was doing the assessing didn't know how many vaccines containing aluminum that child had gotten. Then they obtained blood to look at the quantity of aluminum in the circulation, and they obtained hair, uh, hair samples, so they could look at wh how much aluminum that person had been exposed to over a, a period of time. That's the perfect way to do that study. And what they found was there was no relationship between the, the number of aluminum salt containing vaccines children had gotten and developmental outcomes or levels of aluminum in their blood or hair because we're all exposed to aluminum assuming we live on this planet. It's the most abundant or, or, or frankly one of the most abundant, uh, abundant light metals on the planet. And if you eat water or eat uh, food on this planet or drink water on this planet, you're going to be exposed to aluminum. So I want to unpack that a little bit because um, that was all very fascinating and really instructive actually to me. I had not heard of that study, but I just want to back up a little bit to sort of when, you know, what prompted Dr. Bob to write his book, what prompted parents to start seeking delays in vaccination. And I'm wondering if there's a point at which once and I'm going to kind of go through my thinking on this before I really ask the question, but if there was a point at which we added a certain vaccine or the internet came around or Jenny McCarthy went on Oprah, um, what was there a, a real spark that really sort of changed the topic of vaccinating on time versus not vaccinating on time? 
I think it was cumulative. I think what happened in the 80s as we added, and the 90s as we added a haemophilus influenza uh, B vaccine, as we added a pneumococcal vaccine, um, as we added a rotavirus vaccine, as we added more and more vaccines, I think there was just a, a, a gradual uh, concern that it was just too many, that we, we had just crossed the line. And I think what, what he did initially, I think, uh, Dr. Sears, is he, he thought he had two options here. He could do what, what he should have done and what most pediatricians, I think, do do, which is to say, yes, although they're getting five shots at this visit, they can certainly handle it. And, and here's how you know why, given that, you know, that when a child uh, leaves the, the birth canal and enters the, uh, the world, you know, that they're very quickly uh, colonized with trillions of bacteria to which they make an immune response. And that the, the, the massive amount of, of insults that you get by living in this world is far greater than anything that you would uh, get from vaccines. So I think that um, that was, was um, something he could have chosen to reassure his patients with and that, that if they're if they're scared by by these five vaccines you know just take a nasal swab and of the child's nose and, and put it on a microscope slide and look <laughs> at it under the microscope you know so the children are, are, are th that that microscope slide would be teeming with bacteria to which children make an immune response i mean you want to make sure that those bacteria that live on the surface of your body stay on the surface of your body and you make large quantities of immunoglobulins every day to make sure that's true so what what you know what you're getting from vaccines is trivial a Common cold is a greater chance to the immune system than vaccines. I think a scraped knee is a greater chance to the immune system. So that's what one uh, could have done. That's what he could have done. He could have handled this notion that the children are getting a lot of shots by saying, look, it, it, it may look like a lot, but given what we normally encounter, it's not a lot. In, instead, what he did was he chose a different route. He said, basically, he said, okay, we'll, we'll make you feel better by, by spacing these vaccines out, by, by making sure children don't get more than two at a time, by delaying vaccines that didn't that didn't in any sense make vaccines safer all that did is it made it at least for for some parents perceived to be safer and and that wasn't true because in fact quite the opposite that by delaying vaccines by increasing the period of time during which children were now susceptible all he did was put those children at great, greater risk I think that's really a salient point. And I kind of want to ask you about something I have talked through and thought through myself to see if I'm on the right track and see if you have anything to add to it. And that's that it feels like part of the reason parents are scared of the on-time schedule, the actual only schedule, is that they have this perception that we're always adding so many vaccines to the schedule. And Nathan and I have talked about, you know, I have three kids. I've got one who's 25, one who's 16, and one who's 11. And so they, they've received slightly different vaccine schedules. But really, it's like the difference between the 25-year-old and the other two is, I think, a pneumococcal vaccine. And between the 16-year-old and the 11-year-old is a rotavirus vaccine. And when I looked at the schedule and how it was developed, it looks like there's only like one or two vaccines ever added in a decade. Maybe there's changes in the number of doses or boosters or something like that. But there aren't actually a lot of new vaccines constantly being added. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, if... I'm correct, actually, in my assessment, but also, you know, if if that sort of myth about how many vaccines are constantly being added feeds into this. I think you're right. 
I think that's right. It's been really an accumulation, right? I mean, the, the vaccines I mentioned I got then, there was a measles vaccine in 63, a mumps vaccine in 67, a rubella vaccine in 69. You know, then we started to later add the pneumococcal vaccine, the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine. The varicella or chickenpox vaccine came in in 1995, the rotavirus, yeah, 1995, the rotavirus vaccine in 2006. So, so you know, we the meningococcal vaccine is a routine vaccine for adolescents, you know, around uh, uh, 2005. The hepatitis A vaccine around 2000. And, and you know the so you're right. It's just basically every decade sees sees a couple new vaccines. The, the 60s saw three vaccines, but yeah, you're right. I think that that's right. It's, it's gradually added. The main reason is that you know these programs are 20 to 25 year programs, so they they come sort of to fruition. You know at at, at different times. So with these vaccines that are now on the schedule for today, can you walk us through a how the CDC schedule is determined, what goes into that, and why it's recognized as the best, as the actual uh, schedule that we recommend? Right, so it, it's a two-step process. The, the first is a if you're going to uh, make a vaccine, I mean, so our, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the bovine human reassortant rotavirus vaccine, Rotatec. When, when we did that, um, we had to prove pre-licensure that the vaccine given in, in, as we were giving it, which was uh, by mouth at two, four, and six months of age, did not in any sense interfere with the safety or immunogenicity profile of existing vaccines and every part of that existing vaccine. I mean, so for example, if it was a, a, a whooping cough vaccine, the pertussis vaccine, and it was a five-component vaccine, you had to show that your vaccine didn't interfere with the, this, the immunogenicity profile of any of those five components. I mean, these were, they're called concomitant use studies, and they're massive. They're there are probably 800 concomitant use studies out there because you have to prove that you, you know your vaccine, in order to get on the schedule, in no way interferes with that schedule. That that you're safely and effectively preventing your disease, but also not in any sense affecting those other vaccines. So, it, it I think people should really look at just how much work goes into these vaccines pre-licensure. I mean, the human papillomavirus vaccine was tested in 30,000 people for seven years pre-licensure to prove that it was as safe and effective as, as, as we know it is. So, so that's, that's it. So then you, sub, you know, the, usually those, those so-called phase three data, which is to say big, you know, a large uh, prospective uh, controlled efficacy trial proves that the vaccine was safe and effective. Then it goes to the CDC, which, which does the next thing. The FDA just says, yes, you've proven it's safe and effective for this age group. And then the CDC has to say, okay, not only is it safe and effective, but I think it's valuable. And I think that it should be used. So, you know, then they do, they, they either make a recommendation or they don't. I mean, in the case, for example, with the Lyme vaccine, that, that didn't get a full-throated recommendation. It got a basically should be considered recommendation. Similarly, with the HPV vaccine, though licensed for the 27 to 45-year-old, that gets a, you know, uh, sort of a, a so-called, what used to be called category B or, or permissive recommendation, now it's called shared decision-making recommendation. Um, again, not a full-throated recommendation, just a you should think about it recommendation. So just because the FDA licenses it for a particular uh, age group, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it gets a, a full-throated support from the uh, the CDC. And then the third step, which I think is the least important, frankly, is the is the um, whether a vaccine gets mandated, and that really depends on different locales and states in terms of what kind of money they have and what they consider to be important. But I think that the, from the parent standpoint, if a, if a vaccine has been shown to be safe and effective and, and, and given the FDA stamp of approval and then the CDC's recommendation, I think that that's enough to say it should be used. 
Um, you've been a working group member and at one time a voting member of the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, for a lot of years. And that sort of is the place where the discussions take place about how to recommend vaccines, whether or not to recommend vaccines. And I just have a question for you about how much do you love attending those meetings and find them um, fascinating? Yeah, I used to love them a lot more um, the, <laughs> when, before we got besieged by the anti-vaccine groups. Um, the, I mean, to the point that now there's a rope that separates us. There's separate uh, you know, bathroom facilities for people that are, are voting members, liaison members, or working group members as compared to um, the, you know, the public. I mean, so it's gotten much testier and I think a little meaner, and which has made it far less fun. And I also think to some extent that... The, 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 the anti-vaccine people have at some level affected that meeting negatively in that, that now you, in order to walk up to the microphone and to share information, mm -hmm. you have to sign up for public comment. There was a, a time before that when people like Stan Plotkin, for example, or, Bill, or whomever, Bill Shafter, whomever, could more easily just walk up to the microphone and share their experience and expertise to educate the people that are sitting around that table. That can't happen anymore. So I think in that sense, the ACIP, or the ACIP has been disrupted by the these anti-vaccine groups but but yeah. the answer to the question do i love it i love it i mean it's like you know there's like two days of, of you know hearing about something you're really interested in um with the people who are making critical decisions so uh, I, I love that meeting i just love it a little less now that it's uh yeah. you're worried about safety you know i feel like i'm I used to tell people who were anti-vaccine, I'd say, go to the ACIP meeting. Maybe you'll see that these things are well considered and well thought through. Um, and I still think that your average parent who maybe has a little nagging doubt could fairly see that the ACIP meetings show fair deliberation. But I, I think I overestimated the <laughs> ability of that meeting to um, win hearts from people who are staunchly against vaccines. Yeah, and, and remember, the ACIP meeting is the tip of a much bigger iceberg. I mean, the working groups you know, spend a lot of time uh, talking about uh, what the recommendation should be based on, um, you know, the data, and and then you know go through it over and over and over again, and then those data are presented to the to the uh, voting members of the ACIP. But the the thing that really bothers me is I can't see how anybody can go to those meetings and not see that the people who are sitting around that table care deeply about getting it right. Uh, that that knowing those people, seeing the way they interact with each other, seeing the questions they raise should make you feel very comfortable that, that no one's going to make a recommendation unless they would give that vaccine to their own children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews. I mean, th that's the part I don't get. Uh, they just are... Um they just choose to believe that there's this sort of massive conspiracy by evil people to hide the truth. And I, I just, it's so clearly averse to what you actually see at that meeting. It's just hard to believe they can maintain that, that false belief. So we've talked a little bit about the increasing number of vaccines that have occurred, kind of one or two vaccines each decade. Tell us a little bit what parents are going to ask is, can babies really handle all of those vaccines at once? Tell us about what babies can handle in terms of their uh, immune systems, in terms of the ingredients, and, and how we know that the schedule as it is, as it's decided by the ACIP, is something that babies can handle. 
So again, you know, you're, you're, you're not let out of the womb until you're ready to face a pretty massive onslaught of bacteria and viruses in your, in your environment. I mean, when babies are born, they will quickly become colonized with trillions of bacteria. In fact, you have 10 times more bacteria on the surface of your body than you have cells in your body. And each bacterium has between 2,000 and 6,000 immunological components. And by immunological component, what I mean in the case of bacteria would be a bacterial protein or the complex sugar that sits on the bacteria, the surface of the bacteria called polysaccharide. Um, in the case of viruses, I mean viral proteins. So, so again, each bacterium, each single bacterium has between 2,000 and 6,000 immunological components. If you add up all the immunological components in the 14 vaccines that are given to children in the first few years of life, it adds up to around 160. 160. And you have trillions of bacteria on the surface of your body, each bacterium having between 2,000 and 6,000 immunological components. The notion that vaccines could in any way weaken or overwhelm the immune system, at least from an immunologist standpoint, is truly fanciful. And then as in terms of sort of the manufacturing residuals or excipient materials or inactivating agents, again, you know, because they're chemicals, they always sound bad, right? I mean, it's like uh, you notice that uh, DuPont used to have a, a, uh, a way of advertising their products as better living through chemistry, yeah, they dropped that. Somehow the word chemical has become bad, even though, remember, salt is a chemical. So it's just, uh, you know, so when people hear words like aluminum or formaldehyde or mercury, they are assuming that, you know, they're being injected with a toxic agent. But realize by living on the surface of their, your, this planet, you, are, are co you constantly have very low levels of all of these things, assuming you live on the Earth's crust, which pretty much everybody does. I mean, you have circulating in your bloodstream thallium and cadmium and beryllium and arsenic and mercury and formaldehyde because you live on the planet. And so as, as, as is always true, the dose makes the poison. I mean, you know, if, if arsenic was, was poisonous at any level, we'd all be poisoned because we live on the planet. So, um, so I think that that's hard, that's hard to get people to understand. I think when you, you know, for example, you talk about mercury, which is used as a um, preservative in some multi-dose vials of, of the vaccine, which are given generally to older children. Um, but, um, you know, when they hear the word mercury, it just never sounds good. You know, it's not like there's the National Association for the Appreciation of Heavy Metals standing up in defense of mercury. <laughs> so I, I am wondering, you know, with all of these facts, that's a, that's a lot of information. We've been talking for about 20 minutes now, uh, and most doctors have a fraction of that time to address any concerns. So I'm wondering, even though I'm not the pediatrician on this call, I'm wondering when parents come in for an appointment, how should doctors handle it if they say, do I really have to get all those vaccines or all of those vaccines now, or can we switch it up a little bit? What What is the best way of working through that with a parent? Yeah, uh, probably Nathan is better uh, better positioned to answer that question than me because I'm not in private practice. My wife actually was probably better positioned to that since she's in private practice. Um, but I think that at the that you should never leave the science. That 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 when someone has a, a concern, uh, the, in the best case scenario, you can understand what that concern is and, and know that there are data out there to answer that concern. I mean, at our vaccine education center, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we tried to produce a lot of you know tear sheets and booklets and a website, obviously, where people can easily go to get information, largely at the request of my wife, who, who wanted her life to be made simpler so that she could just say, look, <laughs> if you have more information, if you want more information, just go here. I did not um, know that. 
Yeah, this was all to make her life simpler. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if she'd be willing, but I think next time we have this conversation, we really need to have Dr. Bonnie off it and Dr. Paul off it on together. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so l- how about broader then? How can, pu- how can the public encourage on-time immunization? Well, for, through groups like Voices for Vaccines, I, I think, you know, th- those groups, the groups of parents who sort of have bound together and said, look, I, I'm, I'm a little tired of, of every time the media has a question about vaccines and want to talk to parents. They talk to parents who, who, who are, are basically anti-vaccine parents. So, I mean, what people like Karen Ernst and, and, and others who stand mm-hmm. up, I think, for, for, for vaccines and say, look, we're parents. We care about our children. So we vaccinate them. And more importantly, we care about society. And, and when a person chooses not to vaccinate, a child they're making a choice not only for their child but for other people's children and 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 i think that that to me is like the best of society when you you see groups like like that standing up for society i think that's what makes me feel good about sort of where things are going as compared to you know the current administration which doesn't right thank you so much paul paul do you have any other words of wisdom for us yeah i I here's what i would say that that in terms of the alternative vaccine schedule the take-home line is that there is no alternative vaccine schedule well, there's a schedule that's well tested, and then there's one that's not. When you choose to sort of make up your own schedule, remember, you're flying in the face of no data. I mean, when a vaccine gets added to the schedule, you know that it doesn't interfere with the safety or immunogenicity profile of existing vaccines and vice versa. When you chose to make up your own schedule, you know, you, you don't know because those because there, there haven't been studies done to look at that particular schedule. So I think it's a it's it's um. It's in many ways a, a, a thoughtless and dangerous thing to do. And, and for those who promote it as, as in any way a safer schedule, it's, uh, it's just false advertising. And it's kind of, it's been hard to watch, especially because, you know, there's really not a, a year that goes by at our hospital, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where we don't see a child admitted with a vaccine-preventable disease and, and who suffers that disease and then occasionally dies from that disease. It's just hard to watch. There's so many things we don't know in medicine, so many things we can't do in medicine. This we know, specific germs cause specific diseases we can prevent those diseases but with vaccines and so it's incumbent upon us to do it so can you tell people if they want to get more information from children's hospital philadelphia vaccine education center how do they find that amazing store of uh bonnie offit of uh, directed materials inspired materials <laughs> 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 yeah, so so it's easy. Just go on, just look, search for Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Although, actually, if you just use the words vaccine education, usually our site is the first site to come up. Mm-hmm. And then, then when you go into the homepage, there's just... I think any possible question a parent could have about vaccines is there. It's under either vaccine safety or vaccine safety references. If you want the specific reference that answers each of those questions, it's there. I, on the homepage, there's something that says vaccine safety references. If you click on that, then comes up about 20 or so links to any possible fear or concern someone has about vaccines. And when you click on that, then you see all the questions that, that or all the studies have been done, like the one I, I talked about earlier for that aluminum study. So you can mm-hmm. see, see, see what the references and then for under each reference we have a two or three sentence summary of what was found in that study so that people know there are data there we're not making it up frankly those who uh who say that vaccines cause autism and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and hyperactivity and and uh and uh those sorts of disorders those are the people that are making it up this 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 vaccines stand on a mountain of evidence you don't have to believe in vaccines they're not a belief system they're an evidence-based system absolutely and i'll just say one of my favorite parts of um the Vaccine Education Center is the uh, l- a look at each vaccine. 
I particularly like how it really does lay out the risks of disease and versus the risks of the vaccine and the benefits of the vaccine. I think it's really clear and really easy to understand. And I actually use the site quite a bit, even though I'm not a person seeking out information for my own good. It's a really wonderful resource. So thank you for putting that together. Thank you. Okay, well, I think that's all we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Offit, for joining us today. Thanks. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Blincher, pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Look for me on my blog at pedsgeekmd.com, though I'm just about to put up one post about herd immunity after about a year of not posting <laughs> to my blog. So everybody get ready. <laughs> um, uh, otherwise, find me on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks.